comes from a land below sea level, but she is most at home and most alive, enveloped by Earth's highest mountains. She is the only person from Bangladesh to scale the highest peak on all seven continents. Her achievements as a climber, adventurer, explorer, activist, educator, are literally redefining what is possible and inspiring millions wherever girls have been discouraged from dreaming big. My guest is Wasfia Nazreen. She'll share with us her stories of trauma and healing, of self-discovery and forgiveness, and the wonder of being mentored and befriended by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Of course, Wasfia also describes her epic climbs, what it took for her just to get near the base camps of Everest and K2, her dear friends who lost their lives pursuing their passion, and her survivor's guilt. Her descriptions are chilling and graphic. She opens a window to how thrilling and punishing reaching the rooftop of the world can be. Owasfia, you seem to be, from our prior conversation, thriving, inspired, doing fulfilling things, busy. But your epic transformation to get to this place from a place of surviving, not thriving, from weathering and enduring is just incredible on so many fronts, and we'll, we'll cover some of those. But, uh, but thank you for being here. I, I plan to learn from you and learn about you even more, and I think our, our people listening will as well. So thanks in advance. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's an honor. I could geek out on mountains forever. We will not do that. <laughs> Don't worry, folks. There's so much more uh, to this woman's life. But you mentioned you're now chronicling your climb of K2. And the seven summits are what you're known for, Denali, Kilimanjaro, Elbrus, Kangagua, Vincent, Carson's Pyramid, and the mountain of, of many names, Jamangba, um, Sagamatha, Everest. But K2 is considered <laughs> by many as the ultimate achievement in mountaineering, and you just did that um, within the last year, and you said you're still just kind of processing that achievement. So how you mentally prepared, how you met the crux of that climb, and how you processed it since is all just really interesting to me. Thank you. Um, K2, or locally known as Choguri, uh, literally implying uh, king of mountains. Uh, it's in the Balti language of the local people who lives in Gilded Baltistan in Pakistan, is, uh, as you know, the dream of all mountaineers. And I first laid my eyes on it, or not literally, but just thinking of going there. 10 or 11 years ago when I summited Everest. But even at that time, I knew that there, there was a lot that I need to learn in order for me to get to K2. And just to put into perspective for uh, listeners who may not know much about the mountain, till today, more people have been to space than stood on the summit of K2. And before I arrived, which was this past uh, summer, June um, 2022, there were literally 18, 18 women since 1954 who had summited the mountain. And of course, within that small number, there's a two list because if you die on the way down the mountain, then your summit isn't counted. And um, out of those 18, several had died, perished. So just to, just to elaborate on how small that number is, whereas Everest, for example, you know, there's over I mean, close to 5,000 summits now, um, and it's about to start another season. So yeah, it's been a dream of a long time, but I had to prep, train, 
research, you know, all that has been in motion for over a decade, but there's an added uh, logistical drama. Uh, those who may not know what is now Bangladesh used to be East Pakistan and what is now Pakistan was West Pakistan. So uh, the Bangladesh liberation movement that happened was against the Pakistan, what is now Pakistan. And we gained liber liberation just in my dad's or my parents' generation. So 50, 51 years ago in 1971, I guess 52 now. Um, so no Bangladeshi was ever uh, you know, allowed a mountaineering permit for K2A. Mm. And it was Bangladesh's 50 years. And so logistically, you know, in my past as an activist, I've also lived in India. No Indian is allowed in the territory. So for me to cross those red tapes was a whole nother ballgame, um, another K2 to climb. And so the buildup to get to K2 was longer than actually climbing the mountain, which is two, two months long. Um, so when I got, and even when I got obtained the visa, which was literally the week that I was supposed to fly to K2, I was told that at any point, even after you enter Islamabad, even after you entered the territory, anyone and everyone could have a right to turn you back if you, so I knew I was being watched the whole time. Wow. And true to their words, as soon as I landed in Islamabad, it was all over the Pakistani news that, you know, and I had no press release, nothing at that time. People just knew, uh, but it was opposite to what everyone had told me. It was very positive. Pakistanis were celebrating that their Bengali sister had returned. And, you know, whether it was the locals in Islamabad, locals in Skardu, army officers, intelligence officers, um, media people, everyone was just like rooting for me. And that, that just changed the whole game. To get back to your question, it was the dream of not just me, but like I would say 170 million people of Bangladesh. And um, I'm still processing it. As I was telling you, we're currently making a feature doc on it. Uh, so we were very fortunate to film the entire trip. Um, so the lifelong so dream of getting there, all the political hassle, all the mental <laughs> preparation, where despite what you've done, I would imagine when it's K2, you are dealing with some doubts, right? Some fear, some oh, trepidation, yeah. just because of the technical challenge of this and the fact that so few have succeeded. So as you're progressing and you're getting closer and this becomes more and more real, how did that mental training, that preparation come into it when you were facing those things and the, and the obstacle was right in front of you? I have a lot of spiritual, you know, uh, people that I see guidance from and my root guru, can say Young Seel, Rinpoche, who resides in Nepal, I had gone to him in 2019 and talked about this and came back because there were several teams that I was planning on going with and I wanted to feel 100%. And then after, then the pandemic happened, so everything canceled. So in 2021, uh, I had just recovered from not dying in COVID. And it was during that COVID period, and I'm not going to get into the details of it, but I almost died. And in that split few minutes of, you know, when I came back from actually seeing light and I was in hospital and I was like, this is the time I'm going to recover because I'm going to go to K2 because that's, that's that, the, that those visuals of the Karakoram just kept appearing. Um, and that was a huge strength uh, or inspiration that helped me recover from COVID. But then I went back to my spiritual teacher and I put three cards of three different teams. And this, you know, 
my teacher doesn't know these people in person, even though they're they may be famous climbers. So he went into there's a process is called divination. Um, so they seek um, guidance to uh, tell the answer or see into the future. And he put his hand on the team that I actually ended up climbing with. And he said, if there's any any team that you're going to go to the summit with, it's this team. And but then he opened his eyes and he looked back and he said that everything that you think of K2 is not going to apply for you. And then he went on to give me this. He's like, and then the second time I went, he opened his eyes and he said, you need to go climb K2 this year. Like, this is it. And trust me, like I have a lot of uh, mentors, good people, friends who support me, but no one has ever in their right mind told me go climb K2 you know and so <laughs> so getting that approval kind of that seal of confidence from my teacher who has in the past guided me through some of the roughest time of my life was like okay I got to do it now and then you know how the sponsor came about within like a 40 minutes meeting how everything set into place so throughout that journey that I was taking the trekking, the climb, whenever, you know, any kind of negative incident happened, I would constantly like be in touch with my teacher and he's who was guiding me through the whole, throughout the whole thing. He was like, don't worry about it because it's going to be different. And so one of the things that he was implying is there, uh, there was a myth that K2 is known to kill women. So, so this is, it's uh, statistically speaking, more women have died because also because a very, very high percentage of the group that climbs K2 has been predominantly male. So you have this amazing personal experience, all that's gone into it, but you're also sharing it with six other women, which, you know, collectively is incredibly powerful given, given the history you just talked about. That must have been astounding sort of, you know, stand around it. It's a very small summit, but stand around at least uh, close to each other close to the yeah. same time five other including me so it was the highest ever women's group that went up to k2 uh, on the same day so that was super um, you know very proud and there was no toxic femininity like we all supported each other and we were like um, even though we climbed with our own uh, sherpa partners um, there was that moral boost and support in order to minimize the uh, risk on K2, so just from base camp to advanced base camp and camp one, camp two, it's super dangerous because of the rock falls. Um, and so it, in order to minimize that, what I, the strategy was to go acclimatize in Broad Peak and listeners who may not know about the acclimatization process, it's like you don't just climb an 8,000 meter peak at one go, you have to go up uh, to a certain height, let's say camp one above 6,000 meter, sleep low so and there are several rotations that happens and that's how we um, acclimatize to higher altitude and then once you enter dead zone which is above 8200 meters approximately at above uh, 26,000 feet uh, which is which I'm sure you know about Chris uh, this is where human bodies don't function we we don't we stop producing cells and the brain loses uh, cells at a rate that it's irreplaceable. So there's even a saying that high altitude mountaineers get dumb and dumber. Um, so the, you're supposed to, but it's true. Like it's, it's just, it's so taxing to the body um, in base camp alone. It's 50% uh, oxygen level than sea level to live in base camp for almost two and a half months, you know, in and out 
and then onwards going up and down. It's just so taxing to the body. By the time I had summited K2 and we came down in two days, I had lost uh, 19 pounds. And the only only other sport I can uh, compare this to is, I guess, would be the F1 races, you know, where Lewis Hamilton loses mm-hmm. some, I don't know what how much they lose, but this is, I don't, I can't think of any other sport where it's this level of, work on the body level, you know, like physical, mental, um, psychological, physiological level. And not to forget, you know, the dead bodies and the things that you see up there. And I, 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 we talked about this, I think earlier is like till at least December, I was waking up with nightmares of bodies and um, everywhere. And in K2, there's a lot of broken bodies like shoe, with the leg coming out hands and so when you see these things on the daily and not just see it but also on the radio there's constant updates of oh yeah so and so fell in the river and was just washed away so and so got hit and so you're constantly getting these updates of injuries accidents not just in k2 but also on broad peak so both of those expeditions go simultaneously and so um, mentally to have that daily maintenance of not being in a negative place because everything that we plan um you know we do our super best but also know that none of it would actually go according to plan and so you have to have that positive mindset that every morning when we wake up or not necessarily morning but we sometimes wake up at midnight and Mm -hmm. go for the rotation at two you know, you have to be adaptable. You can't, you you just, because K2 is going to give you a reason to give up every moment. And the game is to not never give up. Um, yeah, back off if, if there needs to be better decisions to be made, but never give up and just have, keep on producing that positive mentality and keep on fighting. These mountains are holy places to the indigenous cultures. They're places of worship. They're also graveyards as you point out, and whether it's K2, Everest, or many other Himalaya mountains, you, you are constantly reminded, aren't you, of the, the dangers and the mortality and, and the brevity of existence when you see people who are trying to reach their dreams and they're still in their climbing suits, frozen. It's, it's, it's something I guess you would never get numb to. Yeah, it's super surreal. And uh, so flash, or just if we go back to my Everest climb, which was... Uh, 2012 I was barely 29 um I had a very young mind and you know I knew I was going to see dead bodies I had seen dead bodies before that on the mountains but to the level that it happened and at that time it was the second most deadliest season from um I guess after 1998 one disaster that had happened and um just on the summit push alone I crossed seven dead bodies out of which five where people I had known and met up with in base camp and had tea, you know, base camp is a place right now in modern time. Uh, I would say base camp is kind of like uh, the Himalayan version of Burning Man. But back <laughs> then, you know, there's all kinds of shit show happening there. But uh, with uh, going back um, to 2012, it, you know, it's it's a village. It's just literally like a small town that gets built over the moving chunk of glacier. You can't say it's moving because you can't see it, but it's actually moving. So um, you become that becomes your family. And so people that you get so close with and you have to cross their dead bodies and keep on going. And the first thing that always comes to my head is like, oh, I, 
I could be next because you never know what's going to happen in dead zone. So um, I lived with survivor's guilt for a long time also because I've lost friends on the mountain, but uh, I don't know if you would call this survivor's guilt, but you know, because I, I was not necessarily involved with their death, but I made it, you know, I made it to the top and I came back alive. And so that is, I am part of the group that survived to tell the story. So in a way it is survivor's guilt, but also, you know, it's uh, these people chose on their free will to go up there. Um, and like before I went, uh, it was my personal choice that, you know, I made a will, especially before Everest, uh, that if I'm, if I die on dead zone, don't risk anyone to go up there because I'm, I'm in heaven. I'm choosing this out of my own consciousness. And uh, yeah, it's something that I'm still, uh, I guess, finding peace with uh, internally. Um, I, I still have visuals of crossing dead bodies and uh, leaving them there. I also asked Wasfia about her experiences during the massive earthquake that shook Nepal in 2015 killing almost 3,000 people, leveling whole villages, and sending a deadly avalanche into Everest Base Camp. There's a big story to that. I lost my best friend in that, uh, and my climbing partner, Dan Fredenberg, and his body was the first one to be found on in that earthquake. But that's actually where my survivor's guilt started. I didn't know that till many years later, but I was on a flight to get to Nepal and the route was that, because oh, from those who may not know, from Bangladesh to Nepal is literally a one hour flight. It's the shortest place, uh, shortest flight from our country to go anywhere else. Um, and so I was en route to go to Nepal, meet Dan, who was already in base camp with some, several of our other friends. And so I usually take the heli from Kathmandu airport to, you know, directly into Kumbu. And on, on the car ride to the airport, one of my other spiritual teacher, Karmapa, he called me. He never calls, you know, and he said, get, get, get off that flight. He, he didn't, I didn't tell him anything. He knew it. He said, get off that flight. I said, holiness, what are you talking about? Um, because I had so much at stake. I had all these things organized at Everest Base Camp and I wasn't going to climb. I already had climbed in 2012, but my best friend and several of my other, every other season I would go back to Base Camp anyway, because all my it was kind of like our uh, convergence, our own burning man. <laughs> like every year we would just unite there. And uh Anyway, long story short, he got very angry. Karmapa never gets, you know, these teachers, it takes a lot for them to get angry. And he said, come and see me right now. And he hung up and I said, come and see you? What? And like, and so I sent a text to Dan. That was my last text to him is, uh, hey, long story, like Karmapa just called me. I need to go. I'll be back in two days. I'll, I'll figure it out. And what? It was his way of pulling me out of that uh, earthquake. And first thing I knew, you know, there was just so much going on because the networks had stopped when the earthquake happened. So it was very hard to get information. And Dan was in the base camp and, you know, it just the avalanche took him um, and smashed his head against the rock. And so the next time I saw Dan was in literally like powder formant. He was cremated by that time. Um, and but it took me two years to get back to Everest Base Camp. I had a whole ritual. I put a like a chorten, uh, which is the memorial 
to up to go to base camp and I took some of those ashes back and we did a whole puja ceremony with it. Um, but yeah, so we I stayed for months in Nepal doing all the post earthquake, you know, recovery help when I remember there were 360 plus aftershocks and we would just hold hands outside outdoors lived under tarps and this is the power of you know people from the himalayas whether it's tibet or nepal you know everyone was helping out like it, it doesn't it didn't matter if you're rich poor what class what caste you came from everyone came out and was just holding hands helping each other like across anything and so um yeah, it was a very powerful time, but it's also, it was a lot of grief that we had to process that that year alone. Well, there's been so many forms of trauma in your life that there really, there's no GPS navigation system. There's no roadmap for you to get from Bangladesh to what you've ascended to and achieved. There, there's no role models, as you pointed out for this, because you, you are a pioneer in that way. We'll backtrack a bit, but what does it say to people from your country to girls anywhere that you have achieved what you have achieved when none of those things were present before you started your path? For especially people from my country, like very few people have actually seen a mountain. You know, we are below sea level. Bangladesh is known as the country of rivers. We're crisscrossed by rivers. but Fed by the Himalayas, right? Isn't that part of it? There, no, but all these rivers are actually coming yeah. from the Himalayas, yeah. you know? And like I said, we're one hour away. There's only a teeny bit of India that separates us. But uh, by car, it would be less than an hour drive. But we don't know if, if there was a bridge that was over. So uh spiritually too like we've always been connected uh whether through buddhism or so the geographically like our sustenance our main rivers they come from himalaya so we've had that connection um i guess the people themselves would be the best to answer this question but i i didn't realize the effects till let's just say when I climbed Everest, uh, I was 29 years old. By the time I came down to just the base camp, it took us two days. And I remember my, at that time, I didn't have a smartphone. I had those pre-smartphone uh, sets, but my uh, uh, satellite phone was just like buzzing with, you know, everything had happened. It, it had already, because I made a call from the summit at 6.26 a.m. And so the way it changed people's perspective on women's power I would say and just uh, that patriarchal shift that oh if she can do it then anyone can because I way before climbing Everest I was already on the grassroots level somewhat known because to my community because of my activism and writing and you know standing up with different causes and so I had some visibility and people knew where I came from you know what my that I was an abandoned child I was uh, you know I had a hard life to begin with the education wise and just career wise I do want to talk so, about that but Bangladesh is a place where for centuries girls were discouraged from dreaming big discouraged from bettering themselves, married off early. I mean, it, it, that's what's so dramatic and so stunning about, about your path is that you, you might have been one of the least likely people to get, yeah. get where I you mean, got, right? Yeah. I mean, in my life, I've been told all the things that I couldn't do 
instead of telling me, you know, inspiring a little girl that all the things I was able to do. So it's always like what you cannot do, uh, right? You cannot dress a certain way. You cannot walk a certain way. I was told I couldn't play even, or as a kid, I was told I couldn't ride a cycle because I would, I would lose my virginity. I couldn't play badminton because, you know, you have to keep your scarf on your covered the front side, all these rules, right? And so um, in the beginning, though, people didn't believe me when I when I started the campaign of climbing the seven summits. And, um, and I've had many people actually, even educated people come come and say, you know, when you started, no, none of you, none of us believed you, but you proved us all wrong. And so that coming from senior, uh, whether it's my dad's generation or my grandpa's generation to across the board. And then when I came back, I, I will never forget when I got back to Bangladesh airport, there were the amount of people that were in the airport and not just like paparazzi and like media, just like people from my village, from my grandfather's village. This is the one of the most conservative parts of Bangladesh. And I've in the past, I was kicked out from the village because uh, of the you know activism stuff that I was doing. There were, I brought shame to the family apparently. And so now all the people were back they were like literally made that journey from my village to Bangladesh capital Dhaka in buses with you know like wow. all the fanfare maskets and things like that they brought two Pajero cars for me to get get with their like as if I was going to leave my brother and go with them like all of this stuff was happening and then over the next few months or even within that week I got everything from marriage proposal to Bangla cinema offers to modeling offers to brand endorsement like it was just a time in my life where externally there was a lot happening from six in the morning to midnight. I was back to back to back in like reception shows, all of that. But ex internally, I'll go into that. I was going through a really rough time because there was just so much to process from a journey, 29,000 feet up, you know, and then back to sea level. And externally, you had to deal with like your entire family coming back to your life, fighting over who to who is going to take credit. And also um, at that time, I had to really sit with myself because fame is great. Exposure is great, but it's also another distraction to your path. And I could either choose to get, you know, totally ride that wave and forget about my campaign that was, you know, happening. And I had, but I had to really focus. And I actually took a flight out to Nepal within two months because I couldn't sleep. Um, like I, I would, again, wake up with a lot of trauma from the mountain and things that I, I, I realized that I had to leave that whole scene to in order to process. Um, if I may just add one of the chapters in my, which I'm writing now is called Avalanche Lullaby. So I, uh, like I said, you know, when you sleep in, whether it was on K2 or Everest, you're sleeping in base camp on a moving chunk of glacier, right? And in Everest, those who's been to base camp, the base camp is surrounded by all these 7,000, 8,000 meter peaks. And so when you're on the glacier, you're constantly hearing from left to right, like, whether it's small rocks falling to big avalanches. So like I could make a whole soundtrack of it. And so that was what I heard before going to sleep every night. And so when I had gone back to Bangladesh, I had, ins I had developed insomnia for a while. 
And the next season, I went back to Everest just to get some sleep. And, you know, officially speaking, you, you're not allowed to stay in base camp if you don't have a permit to climb. But because I know Sherpa people and, you know, some of the authorities, they let me sleep. And so I would just sleep there for weeks um, while people were climbing to the top. Um, so it's just to say like that mother's embrace, it's it's. Myolang Sangma, who decides the goddess uh, who's known to reside on uh, the summit of Everest. The mountain is known as Chomulungma, and the goddess uh, who resides in her is Myolang Sangma. She's one of the five uh, long living, uh, long life giving deities in the Tibetan pantheon. And actually, four of her other sisters are in the other mountains. Uh, I won't get into that, but Myolang Sangma is known to give you abundance, long life, and uh, like anything you wish for, if you go abide by her. And I had so many powerful encounters with that, which is going to take more stories. But um, just to say that that connection, I feel like it still exists. And I was really, uh, I did everything in my powers and knowledge to express my surrender to her and go through all that process of humbling myself. And I feel like she's given it, given that glory to me and she's known to give that glory to people who uh, goes by guy by her rules so to speak that's lovely um, I, I know that so, when you, you know, sorry go ahead no when you when you got back from from everest and you were trying to process and absorb that um the question came okay you, you you've summited everest now, what about the ultimate summit? When, when are you going to get married? When are you going to, going to be, have you embrace a conventional life? That's all well and good, Wazbia. But now you need to do you know, the Bengali thing, and you, you need to take a husband and have a conventional life. And obviously, that wasn't a path that, that, that you embraced. No, I actually thought that after Everest, I would get a lot of people to support me. And so instead, CEOs of companies, and of course, these are educated people, they looked straight into my hands. It's like, you've already climbed Everest. What's the point of climbing any other mountain? You've reached the highest mountain. And I was like, so they don't actually get the beauty of you know climbing or why we do what we do. So to them, it's like, oh, you've reached World Cup you've made you've gotten that trophy forget about climbing for just now focus on your real summit they call it the real summit you know the marriage make some babies <laughs> and then even after i finished seven summits there were more emails that i got oh time for your eighth summit you know um because every summit somehow like after k2 i've gotten marriage proposals again it's like <laughs> part of my culture i've always uh, you know uh, find a lot of joy in explaining is like everything that is marriage related it doesn't matter if you're going to get divorced the next day just just get your things together you know like settle down um one of the stories or not one but one of the you know encounters is like from average people, right? Like people who, let's say a rickshaw puller. Um, you've seen those rickshaws, sure. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these people, they don't necessarily, like they're not aware of news and stuff. So when I would walk in the street, I've had people from rickshaw pullers to people who's come all the way from the Northern part of the country, just like on a two day journey with their two little girls all the way to my office address that was advertised and just like saying, oh, oh, if you can do it, please bless my daughter so she can also do it. Like I almost became like, a, oh, bless my daughter, like a, like as if I was like a peer or like a spiritual person that if I blessed her. And so, but this very, you know, conservative looking father, when he's wanting to, for the, his girls to change and climb a mountain, 
I mean, not that I want everyone to go out and climb. I'm just saying that that patriarchal shift is wow. what I think where my, um, I would say the success stories are. So like a rickshaw puller, when he, I remember he was like, you're the one who got up there, right? And I was like, got up where? Because I've gotten up many places, you know, but he didn't even know what the mountain was called, you know? He just knows I'm the one who went. And so he's like, I'll give you a free ride, you know? I was like, I don't want a free ride. Like, I'll, I'll bet so you, I bet you you're too modest to fully appreciate what you just said, what you related that centuries and centuries of doctrine and cultural practice, you changed it. By just what you did, you changed this man's thinking and other people's thinking about what is possible, what's appropriate, what's acceptable, just because of what you did. So um, you're probably not in a place to, to admit that, but um, it's pretty well documented, Masvi. So you have to you have to receive it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Honestly, I was just I just didn't want to be. If anything, like mountains gave me freedom, and I followed that path to freedom. And by going on my journey it just happened to have inspired other people and yeah i don't uh, yeah <laughs> i think that one of the folks that uh, inspired you was one of the most inspirational figures in in history his holiness the dalai lama someone that you consider a mentor and a friend which uh, puts you in 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 precious company i would think and it wasn't it's uh, the dalai lama that that initially pointed you toward the mountains who, who saw something in you in his wisdom this is going to be a place for you and, and not a bad lead to follow to get there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, I mean, I could talk for days on his holiness and uh, couldn't we refer to him as Kundun. Um, and uh, there's actually a movie by Martin Scorsese on that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories. But when I first met him in my early 20s, I was barely 21, 22. And it was a time in my life where, you know, I had lost my parents my parents abandoned me I grew up with an aunt and you know like just getting up to graduating college was really hard struggle and so I had nobody to look up to not a mother father brother like nobody and then fast forward to you know in college I got a grant to go to Dharamsala and I'm not gonna go into the whole story because I know that's longer than this podcast will allow but the first time I actually met him, it was a call from His Holiness's office uh, at 7.30 in the morning. And I thought it was a prank call from a friend of mine who <laughs> was asking that, oh, Nazreen, you had, first of all, no one calls me Nazreen other than, you know, official people. So half of my mind was like, couldn't be my friends pranking. It sounds kind of familiar, like, a, you know, official from His Holiness's office. And the call came saying, oh, yeah, we, um, Holiness heard about what you're doing here and would like to meet you if you're up for it do you think you're up for it and that's when I was like is this a joke because I was like of course I'm up for it and then he gave me the time to see him half an hour later and it's like eight in the morning and I had I was like on the top of the hill where I was in Dharamsala and so I had to get ready and I just so it was a very unprepared meeting you know I was it was a shock of the first meeting I ever had with him and so yeah um long story short in our, from our first meeting onwards, Holiness basically told me that, in his own words, uh, that I won't do justice to, but the gist of it was that there's a reason that you're here at this age. It's not because um, of accident or anything. It's everything is related to karma. And um, he looked into my eyes and I was, I remember I was shaking and I was very nervous and I was like, 
couldn't believe that this person that, you know, and of course, always knowing that Tibetans themselves are not, you know, able to see their own leader. So I'm, I'm very privileged to get this meeting. But he looked at my eyes, he said, you're my old friend. You know, you're here for a reason. And then he did this zap on my third eye. And, you know, he's super strong. And when he does that, not like necessarily physically, but it's super powerful. And he said, um, never, uh, never doubt, doubt your own powers. And, <laughs> and I didn't understand what he meant. So that was the first one. And then, you know, we ended up, you know, he, he never had a friend from Bangladesh. So I guess I got lucky by default being a Bangladeshi. And he so takes he had his a lot finger and puts it above there on your temple, but on your forehead between your eyes and tells you never doubt your own powers. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so and I think, uh, you know, and throughout many meetings, he's always told me always question everything, you know, even myself. Like if I tell you, just don't believe it, like question. So, um, and then I was thick in the free Tibet movement and he would call me and he would be like, when I would meet him, he's like, this is not your fight. You're supposed to lead the women of Bangladesh. And I was, you know, in my early twenties, I was really hot rebel. Like uh, you wouldn't recognize me seriously, Chris, if you met me <laughs> in my twenties, I was doing all this crazy stuff of walking into China, you know, like with military everywhere with a flag in my backpack. And so he was trying to keep me safe. And he said, you know, I thought he was trying to keep me safe, uh, but he actually saw what I was going to do. And, um, you know, at that time I was climbing only like 5,000, 6,000 meter peaks, which are all over the Nepal um, and Himalayan range. And so uh, this, the th part that you were talking about, it actually came through a different conversation where he told me, he made me reflect on, my uh, memories with my parents because mm. I needed to get forgiveness from them. And um, I had no memories with my mother that was happy. And when I told that to him, he said, uh, she carried you for nine months, didn't she? And, you know, at that time I was super angry because I wasn't. Well, you know, she, was she walked out place. on you when you're 12 or 13 years old to, to escape a marriage with no warning. And you, you have said that she was not just your mother or your nurturer. She was your teacher in many things. She was, yeah. she was everything to you. And one day she's gone and you don't see her for years after that. Yeah. And another additional uh, thing is that I actually helped her in that affair and uh, who she ended up, you know, fleeing with, but she could have just had that conversation with me and left and not just leave, you know? Um, and then I didn't see her till, um, you know, I found her when I was 27 um, so anyway, so when she, uh, when he asked me that I was like, okay, I was trying to visualize myself in her womb and find forgiveness. And then the second line of that was like, but your real mother is really this, this mother earth. No, you find freedom in, in the mountains, <laughs> you know? And so he never, you know, holiness is not known to impose anything on you. He would never say, oh, you should be doing this. Or he just puts these thoughts and seeds, and then you go on your own journey to find, and then that gave me um, confidence in the mountains, but then whichever mountain I've ever climbed, even though if, if they were outside the Himalayas, I've always went for um, with his blessing, holiness's blessing. In fact, you know, he's given me several amulets for specific mountains, uh, especially for Everest. Throughout that time, he sent me with several protection cords and a special prayer to the goddess. Um, and 
I was, uh, you know, I was like, what do I bring from the mountain for his holiness? So I carried some ice from the summit, put it in a bottle. And by the time <laughs> it went from the summit of Everest to Kathmandu, to Bangladesh, to Delhi, to Dharamsala, <laughs> I put it in a nice, like, uh, what do you call them? Like, like a nice uh, container to hold it. It was stinking by the time <laughs> it was in Dharamsala. And I was like... <laughs> I remember walking into that line to get give it to him. I was like, in my mind, I was like, whatever you do, holiness, don't drink this. Okay. Like in my mind, I was just saying that. Uh, and then when he, when his secretary kind of just told him in his ears, he saw that and he started prostrating with to the water. And that's when I, that was a moment when I realized what Mio Lang Sang Ma means. So I was holding this and I was trying to prostrate too because there's the Dalai Lama and all these, you know, um, Dalai, the Lamas and helpers came out and then he does this offering to the sky. And then the first thing he does is he puts it in the mouth and I'm like, oh my God, I hope nothing happens to him because now I'm going to be marked as a Chinese spy, but nothing <laughs> happened. And then he, you know, he did this nice walk and then offered it uh, to, to the altar. And then... Um, the other thing I had done was like on the Tibet. So those who may not know the border of um, Tibet and Nepal kind of goes right over the summit. And I was not allowed, uh, I got banned from Tibet, uh, another whole story back in 2007. And I was told that I was never allowed to step back into Tibet. And so on the summit, I went, I, me and Nima, who I was climbing with, Nima German Sherpa, we rappelled 100 meters down just so I could officially uh -huh. say, um, inside Tibet, you know, and I took a took the picture of the Dalai Lama um, from the cover book of. So I was basically kicked out in 2007 because I had this meditation book called The Art of Happiness with Dalai Lama's cover on it. So I tore that cover and I took it to the Tibet side and I took a picture with it, saying that you know I did step back into Tibet. I felt better doing that than the summit itself because I don't think anyone has a right to tell me whose thoughts I can subscribe to. Um, so I gave a picture of that uh, to Dalai Lama along with the 360 view of Tibet, his homeland mm. that he hadn't um, ever you know, seen in the last 60 years. He got super um, quiet and I don't think I've ever seen him this emotional looking back at Tibet pictures. But then when the official pictures were supposed to happen, uh, you know, he chose that picture of me holding a picture of him inside Tibet. And there's actually a picture of him holding a picture of me holding a picture of him on top of uh, Tibet. And he was like, it's because he's really a calm rebel, you know, like he's, if anything, he's like the disruptor, um, what he's achieved in this life. And so, but he's just very gentle one uh, on the outside. But uh, any tricks that I've learned in as an activist, it's all from his holiness, Dalai Lama, who, who's very skillful at it to be able to move him in that way by showing him a picture of you in the top must no one has more facets to their climb of mount everest and and maybe a closer connection to the mountain other than maybe the sherpas who grew up in, in the shadow of it than you I, that, that is that's incredible um you you mentioned a couple of things that i do want to circle back on uh, with your indulgence you you, you talked earlier about COVID-19. Here you are, you, you, your lungs have been tested to the ultimate degree. You have some of the strongest lungs in the world. COVID is downplayed by millions of people. If they didn't lose someone to the disease, if they didn't get it themselves, if their symptoms are mild, they tend to not really understand. 
you were, were deeply affected by it. As you said, you, you had a near-death experience suffering from it. And then I want you to also uh, talk about how that experience helped you process and heal some of the earlier trauma that you've been carrying around for a long time. When COVID hit, yeah, I almost died. But then the recovery after that was 18 months in between which I was not able to travel anywhere outside U.S., but my father also died during that time. And, you know, I've had a, um, not the healthiest relationship with him growing up. And so from the time that I had COVID, my father was calling me on a daily basis. So we kind of had our closure and forgiveness in that whole time that I was recovering. And it the whole incident made me and thank God I was in LA because I had the resources, which I didn't necessarily have in Bangladesh and Nepal. It's like, you know, all the therapy work that I had done in my adult life, it was from the time that my mother had left from the age of 12 onwards, but I had never addressed the little girl who was actually being raised by a very narcissist personality and what had happened to that little child. And so during that time of recovering physically, I also had my teachers, in my teacher's word, it was like clearing 20 years of karma. Um, I, I did so much deep work. It's like when I look at back, look back at just two years ago, I was in a totally different form, uh, I would say, um, incarnation. I call it the BC era, before COVID era. Um, so it's a to it, it is a different incarnation that I feel right now of, uh, and I think, and now, you know, I, you can't stop me from watching TV. I actually enjoy it so much. And I've, I've, I really feel like I've been on the other side. So going back to K2, doing this big climb with those lungs, um, which was, a, you know, I've been to smaller mountains, 5,000, 6,000 meters, and I've been to every space camp uh, after that. But K2 was a full circle, um, spiritually speaking and physically speaking too. You talk about, you know, doing the work and and dealing with the trauma for people who maybe experience trauma of their own maybe not quite as dramatic maybe not over a period of amount of time and did don't have covid to use as a as a reset button to get there what what is the message wasphia for for people to get through a dark place when they really don't see a, a path forward they they just feel what they're feeling in the moment and they feel like those feelings will be permanent One of the things that really helped me is like reflecting on impermanence of all things. None of no, nothing that we uh, feel is permanent. It's just a, it's 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 a temporary feeling. And you know, I, I just want everyone to know that it doesn't matter. And as cliched as it sounds, like it doesn't matter what circumstance you're stuck in right now. And it may seem like the end of the world, but this is not it. You know, just uh, just to keep the faith that the reason why it's happening is there's a greater lesson out of it and you're going to come out much more stronger than ever before and i truly believe that we are only given what we can handle so like just within my own family what my brother and i went through it was completely different but i was given a specific i was giving a specific lesson to learn so to speak um only I could have learned for my my existence. And so 
when we, you know, it's easy to compare with other people and think that it's only happening to us, but it's important to also remember that we are powerful beyond our measure and like we don't know what our mind and body is actually able to achieve. And so never give up, never give up hope um, and really reflect on impermanence of all things. Well, the power of your example, your achievement, the power of your deeds and words together is is incredible and has proven to be for many millions. What What is the current focus of your, your activism? You, you, you've done so much, whether it's climate change for girls uh, in your country and elsewhere, but what what is the, the focus and the hope going forward? Where do, where do you intend to try to make um, the biggest impact? Okay, so like you know when i was doing seven summits there was no role models uh, especially no person that looked like me a brown woman um so put into perspective in the exploration um family i am like the lowest of the hierarchy because if i may say it's ruled by like white males and it's a very intimidating field to be in uh, and i feel like i have an obligation and duty to tell my stories not only my stories but also highlight stories of other women in general um but also the diversity of it all and um you know this like in everest in general in the himalayan industry it's there's kind of been a culture of oh when I say culture, I mean, because it's dominated by a Western audience uh, or in climbers, there's been a culture of it's our way and the it's it's our no way, you know, it's our way is the high highway. But in that process, there was a, there's been decades of discrimination, decades of um, like, imagine like I introduce you to a friend of mine, Lakparita Sherpa. Nobody, nobody knows about Lakparita Sherpa. Like he, or very few people, like imagine what Lakparita Sherpa and his younger brother, Kamirita Sherpa, who's the 26 Everest summit holders, just out of his many other achievements. If any white person would have achieved half of what they have, they would be plastered all over. So I feel like those stories need to be told. So right now I am working on storytelling of all format, whether that comes through books, uh, films, TV shows, um, podcasts like this. Um, I think it's really important to tell our stories and our way, how it happened. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I don't necessarily think like of it as a legacy per se but uh, that's where my work is but I also have a little foundation um, where uh, you know we kind of, we kind of stopped during the pandemic but we're restarting to you know increase the carbon not the not carbon footprint sorry but increase the women's you know um, because a lot of times a woman from especially from Asia wouldn't even dare to get there because they haven't gotten the resources like I started with borrowed gears in my own career you know I had mm -hmm. slept in I they took bank loans and personal loans to make ends meet I was bankrupted for several months uh, till I started paying things off but I don't want anyone to have that kind of struggle to attempt 
amount in. And so uh, we're creating these scholarships through the programs uh, by Osil Foundation, where I hope that in at least in the next couple of years, we'll be able to send more women and girls, not necessarily to high altitude mountains, but really learn the games of the outdoors, because I think there needs to be, Mother Earth should be free for exploration for everyone, anyone and everyone. And it shouldn't be an elite sport for only a privileged one a group. You told so that's you you've told girls that a mountain need not be eight thousand meters of rock and ice. A mountain can be anything. Yeah. It can do. It can be obviously a wonderful metaphor for climbing, ascending, achieving, and and and, and standing somewhere that people told you you couldn't stand. So yeah, it, and that message is received. You believe that, that the people you talk to, the young girls, understand that um, whatever their mountain is, they can get there. Oh, absolutely, and actually, not just for the girls. So. When you educate a girl, you educate a whole village for sure. Like, for example, some of the girls that did the two-year program um, through my foundation, they're now leaders in their own village. And because, the, you know, they've gotten the seal of approval, they they have now that power to command. And whether it's about educating their village about how to take measures for climate crisis, like in all their fields. It's so, they, so in my culture, especially, uh, our decisions are always taken by others. So just to have that courage to take your own decision is a huge mountain for many girls to climb. So mountains is just an analogy, right? So it, it's a metaphor. So, and it's a great metaphor for anyone facing any obstacle. So I try to use that metaphor to translate to the public that if I can physically do it, you can climb the mountain, whatever mountain you are climbing right now on the daily, you're able to climb climate and I feel like for girls to like alongside girls and women we also need to educate the boys and men and you know have them I don't believe in feminism that completely excludes males as uh, different uh, species altogether I think it needs to be a combined effort so we try to and in fact in our foundation there's a lot of requests from youth in general like of all genders that Apu like Apu means older sister like please start something for the men like what did we do like we're we want to be part of it so I'm just you know at this point where I'm trying to restructure the foundation where it can be more inclusive to everyone um, but I, I I I can only do what I can um, so we'll see where it goes in the next five years um um, I, but I, just to answer your question, I think it's working through different generations, um, old and the young. So, um, and we need that. Your path continues as all of our paths continue. You've been on top of the world. You've achieved all these things. What form will adventure take for you next? What, what inspires you? What, what challenges you? What, what is there to do that people have said, oh, was for you? You've done that, but you can't do this next thing. What inspires you that way? Well, yeah, I don't think of it that way. The problem with falling in love with the Himalayas is like once you fall in love with the Himalayas, there's just nowhere else you're <laughs> going to find peace. And yeah, I love Los Angeles and I love the crew here. But every day that I exist here or any in any other city, I'm visualizing the next mountain, you know. And yes, on the physical level, it is a high, but it's also... Um, mentally like I said it really transforms you right and so after K2 to be frank I was actually supposed to be on an 8,000 meter this season and I backed off and it was a huge decision for me because it's you know 
if you ask me now why do you want to go climb Annapurna I would be like yeah Chris that's what I want to do so I'm really holding myself back because I, I think one of the mistakes or not mistakes one of the things I would have liked to redo with my seven summits that I didn't tell the stories right then and there and as it happened because I was just dealing with so much so with K2 I really want to do justice to K2 and process this and I was we were discussing this before the recording is like I'm currently making as we're making the feature doc we, I'm also process it's like therapy because I'm going through the entire thing in a deeper level that I've never done and I want to want this chapter to be finished before just getting distracted and going in that back to back to back mode that I used to pre pre BC. Well, the Himalaya are timeless and they're actually still growing incrementally every year. Yeah. So uh, that also is a good metaphor. I, I, yeah. I wish you uh, con continued adventures and um, and your your example continues to be a, a a tremendous beacon for lots of people and also a hell of a lot of fun to speak to. So th thank you for sharing your stories and, and your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I really, really appreciate it. I want to tell you this. Waspia's deep knowledge of Nepal and very generous spirit have been an enormous help to me as I plan my own return to the Kumbu Everest region this spring, 25 years after my brother Drew and I had a life-changing trip there, trekking and climbing some smaller mountains around Everest and visiting base camp. I cannot wait to get back there next month. I appreciate that Wasuya puts the spotlight on some of the true heroes of the Himalayas, the local Sherpa people who guide and protect climbers and who summited the big peaks more than anyone. We were only able to cover a portion of her incredible life in this episode. I hope you'll visit wasfianazreen.com. Her website has her writings, her photography, and a link to a short film, Wasfia, that is stunningly beautiful. Check that out. She's also active on Instagram, at wasfianazreen.com. And keep an eye out. She's got some very exciting projects in the works. As always, thanks to my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, and to the folks at Octagon. I'll talk to you soon for more of Season 6 of Fowler, Who You Got.